I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today on The Literary Life is the wonderful Gish Jen. Gish, welcome to Books and Books. Oh my God, it's my pleasure to be here. You'll be reading in a little while. Yep. And uh, unfortunately, we brought you some bad weather for a little while too. But but the day, the sun will rise, the sun will shine once again here in Miami. (laughs) Soon as I leave. (laughs) Well, hopefully you'll stay a little bit. But I hear you did get a little sun this afternoon. Yeah, I got some sun this afternoon. Actually, I have to say, most of my tour, I've had sort of miraculously beautiful weather. That's great. So, you know, it had to break sooner or later. And you live in Cambridge, is I that do right? live in Cambridge, where we are grateful for every ray of sunshine that comes our way. Most definitely you are. And now you're in sort of warmer, warmer climes. I have to say, you know, in preparing for this, um, for having you on today, it was really, really a lot of fun to go up on your website and to look at all of the wonderful interviews that you did. And I particularly enjoyed... Um, the deep dive that they did on C-SPAN, where they do that very long, you know, uh, couple-hour um, discussion with you about your work and your life and about all of that sort of thing. Yeah, that's um, an amazing thing to do, though. I mean, there's one little thing about that, I, which I now warn people who are going to be on the show about, and that is that, you know, you, you only get like a five-minute break. 
I mean, because you know, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, if so you your if, bladder if, has to if, be if you good. <laughs> you got it, you got to go to the bathroom. I mean, you got to run, 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 and run back because it's because it's live because <laughs> it's live. So you know, so that's that's the one thing about that show. Well, we're here. We're here celebrating Gish's eighth book called The Resistors. The Resistors has been getting remarkable review attention. Uh, it's a favorite of booksellers all across the country. And it's a really, really, really good book. If you don't believe me, this is what Newsday says about it. This is a dark, frightening, and triumphantly original work, a 1984 for our time. It's the author's brilliant decision to pit the delights of the all-American pastime baseball as antidote to the rigors of the surveillance state. Pleasure versus pain, leisure versus labor, freedom versus regimentation. I have to say, Gish, when I read this, what it was was very cathartic for me because for me, I feel like we're living in very dark, scary times. And the book has that kind of mixture of lightness and dark. It's not completely dark. There is some hope in it, in in the embodiment of um, one's parents and Eleanor and all of that sort of thing. Why did you choose to do something dystopic? Well, you know, I sat down to this book in 2017. My daughter had just gone off to college, you know, so there she was. She was a freshman. And, um, you know, kind of in my, in this tremendous moment of freedom, you know, I could have written about anything, right? Um, But um, lo and behold, I did not write about some wonderful expedition to Patagonia. Um, Instead, I found myself writing about you know, uh, parents watching their their girl grow up and go go off into the world, and that of course that was my state. I mean, I was watching my daughter go off into the world, and of course, you know, it's terrifying. You know, I mean, you you look at of course, you know, part of my worry is just a parent's normal worry, like oh, my daughter's going to get involved with the wrong guy, you know, something like that. But in addition, you know, when I you know you know I'm suddenly looking at an actual young person, you know, preparing herself to do something about this world. And, um, you know, as I started to think about that, of course, you know, all all my citizen worry kind of boiled up, you know. At the same time, you know, I'm looking at the young, they're pretty cool, you know. I mean, these kids are with it. You know, nobody has to tell them that they've got to take their studies seriously. Like, they get it. They understand that they, that there's a, you know, there are big jobs to be done. And, you know, the book is almost like a compendium of all the different things that these kids could focus on. You know, don't like climate change? You can think about the threat to democracy. <laughs> don't like that? Well, you know, we're going to need legislation and AI. You know, I mean, it's like, I, I feel like so there are plenty of ideas for my daughter and for all of her friends. I think you checked off every fear that I have about the future, actually. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the world that you created. Well, you know, so this is a world that's set, you know, in someplace in the indefinite future. I don't really say when, but, you know, maybe 40 years from now, something like that, right? So, so it's a world that resembles our world, but it's different in many significant ways as well. Um, so it's, America has become auto-America, right? And, you know, today our lives are very much mediated by the internet, of course. Um, but, it, but you know, we, what we have today, we have like kind of 4G internet, right, with 5G being rolled out. And, you know, this, if you can imagine kind of a nine or a 10 or an 11 G internet, like what might that look like, you know? And so, you know, in my mind that, you know, that internet, you know, is, is our internet, but with automation and AI features. And no privacy. Yeah. Well, all that stuff, you know, and Alexa, Alexa like functions kind of 
you know, on steroids now, right? So it isn't just, you know, we all know that Alexa is you know, spying on us. And, but now we have the whole house is automated. And um, that's good news in the sense that, you know, it does clean itself up. You know, we like that. Um, but it's bad news too, because it, it knows everything about you, you know? So if you move around that, you know, there's like zone heat, right? So it knows, you know, just from where you're, you know, where you have your heating on it, it knows how you're moving around. It knows, it knows everything about so you. So that's the technological fear. Yeah. Then you also deal with class. You deal with class yeah. in a big, big yeah. way. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, so in, in, in the world of, of, of my book, you know, um, our current Income inequality has just gotten worse and worse. And so now we have two classes of people, um, one, one of whom have jobs. Those are the netted. Um, and one of whom, uh, you know, which does not have any jobs and the they're, they're the surplus, right? And, um, the surplus do have a universal basic income. And I will say that I did write this book before <laughs> Andrew Yang. Um, so, but, but, you know, but lo and behold, um, even though they are given this money, um, you know, the, the, the netted are not really interested in their, in funding these guys forever. And they're not interested in seeing this class procreate, right? I mean, they don't, they do not want to see, you know, uh, more surplus to support all the time. And, um, and so, you know, so they engage in many activities, which, you know, would give us pause if we, if we saw them going on today. Although, of course, they are going on today, right? And then issues of race as well. Yeah, interesting. You know, race has not gone away. Um, you know, the, the race line has changed a little bit, you know, in the sense that, um, there are many people who are Caucasian who are surplus, you know, but mysteriously, all the people who are netted, surprisingly, <laughs> surprise, surprise, right. um, are, are Caucasian, you know. So if you imagine, it's, it looks a lot like, you know, honestly, what Silicon Valley looks like right now, well, you know, so that they're, you know, they're, like I say, it's not that, it's not, it's not just that all the colored, you know, are on one side and all the white are on the other side, but, you know, all the people who are in a favorable uh, position are all white. And then you've created this marvelous construct, this this Aunt Nettie. Mm. Right? So talk about Aunt Nettie. A little well, bit. Aunt Nettie is, you know, this kind of, this is the auto net. This is right. this, this 9, 10, 11G right. um, internet. And um, so it's, it is something which, you know. But it's personified. In, well, we, that's right. Because, because, you know, people talk about it as Aunt right. Nettie, you know. Um, and of course, you know, when, in, in inventing Aunt Nettie, of course, I had Big Brother on my mind. Um, but, you know, it, I think that the big difference between um, Aunt Nettie and Big Brother is, you know, Big Brother was a frightening entity, right? And Aunt Nettie. Is, is part of your part of your life? Yeah. So. Well, she's friendly. Do you mean she's at your service? You know, she's consumer friendly, right? Um, she's interested in you. She's interested in your problems, and so you know, it's it's so it's it's much. I think much creepier, right? And I think it's the way you know you think about our relationship, you know, to Alexa and some of these other um some of these other uh, social media and so on. It's you know it it you know they have us. But they have us because we've consented, right? We've consented to put well, ourselves under surveillance. This is what's so interesting to me as well, as to how this world became this world that you write yeah, about. Yeah. And in one of your interviews, you talk about how you're, you have an ambivalence toward freedom. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, I, you know, I, have a, I think that when we think about technology, um, we, there's a part of us that just wants to let it be whatever it can be. And maybe at some level we feel like it should be, right? I mean, there's no, you know, you don't really want to put checks on it, right? It's, this is like a great human invention. 
at the same time, you sort of wonder if, you know, if, if we are writing, a, a, it's, it's a Frankenstein, you know, completely and completely unregulated and completely you unregulated. And so, you know, so I think that, you know, I have an ambivalence of, you know, myself, you know, about, about regulation, um, which is, you know, in my New Yorker, um, uh, radio hour, Katie Waldman very smartly said, and it's very much like the way we feel about children when they go off into the world. Right. On the one hand, we want them to have complete freedom. Of course, of course, of course. On the other hand, we're terrified. And we're very <laughs> yeah. happy there's that tracking mechanism in iPhones. <laughs> exactly. You know, find my friend if they allow find you to Find my friend, do like that. you keep an eye on where they are, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and um, which I have to say, you know, when, you know, when my daughter was traipsing around Europe with her friend, you know. It's very helpful. You know, honestly, we were very ha happy to have find your friend. You know, and um, and she, you know, she she did agree to that, um, and we were just, you know, we just wanted, you know, like where are they? You know, what we can't know what's going on, but I'm sure that if there had been some function where we could also just kind of take a peek at that hostel, you know, at the neighborhood that hostel is in, you know, somebody sort of said, you know what I mean, like you know. Pick of the pick of the neighborhood. You know, we would have we would have pressed that button in a you know, minute. You probably could have done that with Google Earth. Probably. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. I mean, that's not that's not very far away. So you yeah. know, and that's one of the things about this. You know, that it's it's the the urge to surveil. It's not just Aunt, Aunt Nettie. We also have yeah. the urge to surveil, and as and, parents, and that's what we, makes you know, the book really so strong is because it's rooted in so much of what we know now. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's not something that we feel is so far into the future. It's just a little bit into the future, yeah. I think, yeah. which really made me, as I say, it made me respond to it in a way that, that I was able to work out a lot of these demons of my own by reading this. And in the middle of it all, you have these resistors. Yeah. And, the resistor, and, and, and you use baseball <laughs> as the primary kind of means in which people are resisting. And I just have to read, you know, one of uh, a marvelous writer that I think we both admire who writes about baseball is the writer Jane uh, Levy. Oh, and, yeah, she's uh, fantastic. So she says, I love this novel as much as I fear the future. Gish Jen has conjured... Oh, excuse me. I love this novel as much as I fear the future Gish Jen has conjured in it. In this anything but brave new world, baseball is what survives and reminds us of our humanity. And a girl's golden arm forms a kernel of resistance. What an enchanting conceit. Gish Jen has hit, of course, a grand slam. <laughs> That must have been very gratifying coming from a writer. Oh in my God. I was so happy to, hear, to get that quote from Jane Levy. Well, especially because it also meant that I had gotten all the baseball right, which, you know, exactly. I mean, you know, be, baseball writers and baseball fans, I mean, boy, I tell you, you know, one false move and, you know, and you are toast. And, yeah. um, and so I was extremely, extremely, extremely relieved um, to have passed muster with her. Now, where did the baseball come from? Well, you know, it's, you know, interestingly, I, I'm myself not really that much of a baseball fan, you know, but I do come from a baseball crazy family. So, um, um, my, you know, my parents are Chinese immigrants and, you know, like many immigrants, you, you know, were born in New York. I was born in New York. In, in, right. Yeah. But my parents are from the Shanghai right. area. And, um, you know, and like, you know, like many immigrants, you know, they kind of first performed being American by going to ball games. 
right? So they would go to a ball game. You know, you go to a ball game. You know, you you have a hot dog, and you know, you're you're you feel like you know you're now part of the fabric of society, right? And in my my mother's case, particularly, she became absolutely an absolutely avid. Yankees fan. Oh, you're kidding. No. I mean, I mean, and the, you mo- live in Bo- the most. You lived in Boston. Well, when that, we, we, lived, we were in New York. No, no, right? I know, so, but you lived in Boston. Well, when we went, well, that was a big thing when, yeah. you know, when part of the family <laughs> became Sox fans. That was like a big deal. Anyway, but my mother, my, so, so, you know, so I grew up with this family in this family that, you know, weirdly um, had this incredible attachment to baseball. And, and, and I think I will say a very visceral understanding that baseball was America. Do you know what I mean? Um, my mother's attachment to baseball was such that, you know, a couple summers ago, you know, she she was, uh, she's in her 90s, uh, and she was in septic shock. So she mm. was very, very sick. Uh, she was comatose. She was not responding. Uh, we all rushed to her sick bed thinking, you know, is it actually a priest had been called in for right, last rites? And um, as everybody is gathering, you know, um, in, in New York, you know, my brother leans over my mother and he, you know, he's just trying to get her to respond, right? And what does he say? He says, he says, Mom, he says, the Yankees are in a slump. <laughs> he says, the Red Sox are eating their lunch. And my mother, her eyes open up and Without missing a beat, she says, that Aaron Boone should be fired. <laughs> Aaron Boone, of course, is the manager of the Yankees. And I mean, it was just like, I mean, my mother is crazy about baseball. Wow. And wow. Um, and my brother also, as it turns out, you know, my, my brother was actually- your an, brother was a really he's, good he's an player. Ace, my brother really? was an ace pitcher, wow. an ace pitcher, which they just, um, something that they never would have found out. I think it, you know, we've all been born in, in China. I don't know. Would anybody have discovered that my brother could really throw? Well, my brother could really throw. So, you know, we were growing up in Yonkers, New York, which is a working class town where they take sports very seriously. Sure. I mean, seriously. So, the, you know, the coach had, had played for the White Sox and, you know, you miss one practice, oh, you're out. Oh, he played for the White Sox? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. No, it was like a training camp. They had like a baseball training wow. camp. And, um, and you know, in, 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 and a lot of these guys are fantastically T- uh, fantastically athletic, and and there was my brother. My brother was one of the best pitchers in the city. So when you know when they had a father son dinner and um, they invited Tom Seaver, who did, who got introduced to Tom Seaver, my brother. They said, "Hey, this is our kid. This Chinese kid can throw." They said, "Of course, they'd never seen a Chinese kid before." You know, no, we didn't say we talk about being Chinese American there either. By the way, right. but this Chinese kid, you know, and Tom Seaver, you know, taught my brother to throw the curveball. So, you know, so, you know, in in, in a gazillion ways, you know, my brother found his his place in American society through baseball. So So you can sort of see why, you you know, yeah, you can sort of see it's it's very much embedded in my background. Because in many ways, this is a book about family as well. Absolutely. You know, it's so, the family is so well described, you know, with, um, you know, with, with Gwen and Eleanor. I mean, it's just really a very, very lovely family. Well, really. thank you, thank you. And I think that 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 had to have come from a place of your own as well. Yeah, and I mean, there's a way in which, too, you know, the way that the family kind of discovers right. that they have this girl with an arm, you know, which right. they had never really thought about whether their daughter was going to have an arm no, or I not, love right? the idea. But it's a little bit the way that my they, brother was they, discovered. They discovered. In other it words, very early when she was throwing her, She's throwing her stuffed <laughs> animals out of the, out of the crib. <laughs> but, but it's a little bit the way that my, my parents discovered that my brother could throw, you know, it's kind of, you're not 
waiting for it. You're not expecting it. It just comes seems to come out of nowhere. Um, which I, well, I will say that I think many parents feel that. You know what I mean? Parents discover that their kids can can do handsprings. You know, they, you know, they discover that kids can debate. They discover all kinds of things that they were that truly you are not expecting. And um, and all of a sudden, you find yourself with a kid who who has something. Um, about them, and I will say a thing about them that makes us very different than computers. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it you know, it in I think it is in those kind of gifts that we do, you know, have this feeling like you know, there's something special about being human. And so, well, there yeah, is, no, yes, it's very you know, analog. It's yeah, it's, it's analog. Well, well, there's something. You're, you're there's a gift. To do it. It's a gift that you have, a natural gift of one sort. Yeah, or but that's, it's a special thing about humans right. that we we have these kinds of gifts, and, and and it does make you know so it does make us very different, you know. And because of that, because yeah. it's such a human gift, there is such a desire to keep it that way, yeah, and to keep it separate from Aunt Nettie and everything else. Yeah, and well, that one, was one of the roots of the resistance, in, in a sense. Yeah, and so, of course, one of the other things that's going on is, you know, is bio-improvement, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I mean, so, you know, the question is like, well, what are we trying to, why don't we just bio-improve? You know, well, what are we trying to protect, you know? And the answer is there's something about these these gifts that seem to come from nowhere that you know, you can argue, you know, whether you know whether this is coming from you know the divine or where it's coming from, but I think that m- many of us humans feel that were we to lose that, you know, uh, that we would have lost something very, 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 very precious, and that our humanity is tied up with it, right? So, so with all of the naturalistic novels that you've written, tell me how this the process of writing this was different well it was different well part of the part of the reason it was different was simply that i had a big chunk of time which i never have um and that was partly because my daughter had left the house so you know i did not have to do grocery shopping i mean except for myself but you know what i mean i did not have to do meals um i just definitely didn't have to bring anybody around on a college tour or anything even slightly like that um so i had I, you know truly i could just write around the clock which i had not been able to do since i was a graduate student right so many 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 years did it take also much research did you have to research of course i was also you know lots of research around the baseball and i AI as well. Yeah. I'm very lucky that um, because I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the AI was very easy to to research. Um, MTech, which is the MIT Technology Reviews uh, Conference, they very sweetly let me come gratis and you know, sit on sit in on uh, on their doing. So I, you know, I had some sense of what you know what the cutting edge looked like. Um, a very, so I was, and of course, there are all kinds of people to consult with in Cambridge. So I'm very, very, very lucky that way. Um, and also, I will say that you know, this an incredible amount has been written about baseball. As, you know, among things to to research, it's it's a it's a very easy thing to research. And there's also incredible history of baseball novels that yeah. go beyond the traditional kind. Absolutely, of baseball trying to sort of explain life in one way or another. Right, right, right. There's um, a wonderful poem. I don't know if you know this. You know, Gail Maser's poem. You know. 
baseball is not a metaphor. Mm. <laughs> and of course, she starts it that way because baseball is a metaphor for everything. Completely. You know, and it, 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 it is an incredible microcosm of life. And I, and I would argue of democracy, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, you know, it's the level playing field. It's the idea that everybody should have a chance at bat. Um, and it's also the idea that, you know, that you can have a, an arena that's governed by, by rules that everybody agrees on and that those rules will will bring something out in us, you know what I mean? That they will enable to realize ourselves in a way that, you know, we wouldn't be able to if it were not for those rules. And rules, by the way, that can be changed. Yeah, well, there's this wonderful kind of newsletter that I get that a friend of mine turned me on to called Baseball Codes. And it's basically an explanation of the kind of uh, unsaid rules, the things you don't do as a baseball player. Yeah. Like you don't stand up and after you hit a home run, you don't embarrass the pitcher too much, (laughs) those kinds of things. But it even gets into even more detail. And I think one of the things we're finding out in our politics now is that there is so much of our politics that's governed by codes yes. and not necessarily by laws. Right. And when someone breaks those codes, right. there's no recourse. Sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that, that is absolutely true. And in any case, but so it is, of course, the baseball in my book is kind of an idealized baseball. Do you know what I mean? We don't have any cheating. We don't have anybody banging on trash cans. <laughs> There's no Houston Astros. <laughs> There's no uh, Houston Astros. Um, but so, so this way in which my book is kind of a dystopia, but it's kind of a utopia as well, right? So this is utopian baseball. And baseball, by the way, where, um, you know, unlike our current Major League Baseball, where women get to play, you yeah. know? I mean, I, as part of my research, of course, I did read every biography and autobiography by, you know, by women pitchers. And, you know, to me, it's like, you know, some of these guys, some of these guys were really good, you know? Um, and, um, you know, you know, I always think about, you know, this league is, is one in which, for instance, um, Mamie Peanut Johnson, you know, Mamie Peanut Johnson played in the Negro Leagues. She was five mm. foot three. She was 105 pounds in her uniform, soaking wet. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, but she could really throw. Satchel Paige taught her to throw. And, you know, I, you know, this is a world in which, you know what, Mamie Peanut Johnson would have gotten to play, you know? Oh, uh, I would, would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, actually. no, it'd be cool. <laughs> I would have really loved to It'd be to cool. Some seen. of these guys were amazing. Yes, you grew up, was it in Yonkers where you grew up? Um, I, was, uh, I was Queens, then Yonkers, then Scarsdale, New York. Okay. And the classic immigrant progression right, all the way up <laughs> was writing something that came as an interest of yours very, very early. You know, just a couple of years ago, I actually saw my third grade report card. And, um, and in it, the teacher had said, you know, she really likes to write. So, you know, I, you know my teachers noticed, you know, my, in fifth grade, um, I moved to Scarsdale, New York, and, you know, we had a little class magazine. And in retrospect, I remember, you know, I wrote enough to, to, you know, to fill that magazine up, you know, 15 times over, you know? And I did have the longest piece in it, by the way. Five pages, mimeographed. It's all about, about a maid who, who stole some money and she hid it in a hat. And when they picked up the hat, it fell out. Uh, <laughs> <that's true. laughs> but I mean, you know, so people would have said that they knew. But, you know, I am the daughter of immigrants. So, that, you know, I mean, you know, people like me did not become writers, you know, and especially right. my, my parents immigrated at such a difficult time. I mean, it's so early. I mean, I, I won't go into what year. Just what year did they come? In the 40s. 
They came in the 40s. Mm. So, you know, the, in the years that, you know, you're going to say that very, 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 very few Chinese Americans. And, you know, it's a it's a huge cultural difference. I mean, distance to have come. And, um, you know, my father, you know, the, he, you know, um, actually, what actually happened is my father was among the many Chinese engineers who came here really as part of the, as part of the war effort. Mm. Um, so, you know, back then there was talk about opening a second front against the Japanese in the Shanghai Harbor. So they had this big exam and they took these engineers and they were sent, they were being, they were, they were sent here so they could help coordinate that effort. And that was, my father's one of those. And, and that meant say. he went all the way across China, all the way over the hump, which we now know to have been very dangerous, um, all the way across Europe, the whole way Atlantic. By the time he got here, the war was over, right? But, you know. Did he meet your mother here? And he did, he did. He did. But, you know, but those Chinese scientists, that you know, they may have stayed for their PhDs, but they were all intending to go home. Sure. Um, but what happened in 1949 is that um, is that um, the U.S. government um, forbade them from going back because they, they, it was it was feared that they would go back and help the communists, and so they made they cut a deal with Guangdong, which is the, the nationalists, to keep to keep these scientists in the United States. So uh, literally, literally, people were being taken off the boats in Hawaii. I mean, like, they were literally held here against their will. And so my father was one of the people who got stuck here. I mean, like I said, he had never intended to stay his here. His family was back in China. Yeah, all everybody he knew, his whole family, everyone was in mm. China. Why would you stay here? In any case, um, so the result was that, um, so he was offered citizenship under a Refugee Act. And my father said, I am not a refugee. I'm a political prisoner. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was a resistor. He was a resistor. So he refused then. citizenship with the result that, you know, I was like in third grade. My father still wasn't a citizen. You know, was, he had no, because of course his, his China had fallen. So he was kind of, he was not really a citizen of any country. You know, it was kind of, he was, in a was very, your mother a citizen? My mother did point? become a citizen yeah. of the Catholic Church. My father refused. And so, um, so anyway, so I, I grew up in kind of, and by the time things finally straightened out, and my father was a citizen, and you know, they have this daughter who goes to an Ivy League school. The last thing in the world they want is to see her throw it all away. And become a writer. And become a writer. I mean, truly, and I, I understand that today. I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, would you let your kids become a writer? And I said, well, of course, you know, but, but I also say, but I would start saving now. <laughs> You know, I mean, right. I, I today I, I understand, you know, what their concern was. But in any case, um, but it was not the path. And I had internalized that, you know, so it's not like they even had to say to me, you can't be, become a writer. I mean, they did eventually say that. But I myself, you know, I was pre-med, I was pre-law. I always say I became writer by process of elimination. Basically, I was in business school, you know, when I finally realized, like, you know, I just can't do this, you know. <laughs> You know, that is, it's so interesting because it is the story of so many immigrant kids who became writers. Yeah. It's, they, you know, like yeah. I was told, we were discussing with Min Jin Lee and she went to law school, became yeah. a lawyer and then gave that up to be able to write. And it, a lot of familial pressure to sort of do that sort of thing. Absolutely. It's a fun, I was just in Oakland a, it, where I was with two other people who were kind of my generation, you know, kind of. They'd gone to these Ivy League schools, and it was a trifecta. One had one had dropped out of medical school, one had dropped out of law school, and I had dropped out of business school. <laughs> the yeah. Three of us, you know, right, exactly. and um, you know, and yeah. So, and I, I, I do, I do think, um, you know, 
there's and like I say, there's a reason for the, that kind of concern. Was your father able to work as an engineer after when they kept uh, him here? Uh, finally, yeah. But I will say that for many, many years, I mean, he was among the Chinese engineers. And they did they design things like the Beltway in, in Washington. Mm-hmm. They never got any credit whatsoever. And um, you know they was you know they would design things and then they would all be laid off. So no, none of them ever made it into management. Um, and none of them were ever credited credited for their work. I mean, so you know, and my father remembers very remembers very well the way you know, they would sit on these wooden stools. You know, it was very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, but meanwhile, yeah, they're basically just being used as slave labor. You know, they did all the work, and and was no Chinese one, spoken. No, no, the, no way up. Was Mandarin know? spoken in the house? Chinese spoken. Um, Shanghainese. Shanghainese. You know? But we. Uh, but actually, my parents um, brought me and my siblings all up English speaking. I think that was that was a very um, progressive decision of the time because the way that was their way of saying you know what we're not going back so the the the, the parent the um families that were still teaching their kids chinese it was like you know what we're, we're just sojourners we're, we're on our way you know this is going to end we're all going back and my parents were among the earliest to sort of say you know what it's over we're, we're not going to be able to go back mm-hmm. and the kids need to speak english and of course what they wanted more than anything was for us to speak without an accent, you know. Um, but what was the result? You know, I have to say, when I was in, I was a freshman in, in college, and somebody's once said, "Close, close your eyes and listen to Gish speak." And what do you hear? And they all said, "New York Jew." <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was my parents' intended result. That's Let us just funny. say. And Gish is not your given name either, right? No, so no, that's no. That's a great story as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know what happened is my, my given name is Lillian. Actually, of course, I have also have a Chinese name, Bilian. And a Lillian was actually very elegant because it's you know it, it both sounds like Bilian, Lillian, Bilian. Um, also, they both have the same root, which is the lily. You know, and that was that's a wonderful kind of Buddhist symbol. You know, you you come out of the mud and you open up white and pure, right? And um, and so you know that was actually yeah you know, like I said it was that was a very nice choice on my mother's part but I naturally always felt that Lillian was very nerdy yeah. <laughs> you know and especially because I was so nerdy you know so I had I had the Coke bottle glasses and you know so I always thought that 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 was really very bookish and I didn't like it um, that said I don't think I would have changed my name but but when I was in in high school I belonged to kind of a an arty club. And we were starting to go into New York City. You know, we lived in the suburbs, right? We were starting to go in the city to watch cinema, right? And um, and the head of the club um, gave us all nicknames. And uh, so I had a friend whose whose last name was Houseman. So uh, so we called her A.E. And um, and my name was Lillian. So he called me Gish. Because at the time, I did not even know who Lillian Gish was. I mean, I mean, of course, I certainly didn't know that she'd been in Birth of a Nation or whatever. <laughs> anyway, but so Gish, but it was a name that was really used by just really a small number of people under very limited circumstances, right? Um, until I went away to a National Science Foundation um, archaeological dig when I was a junior over the summer. And, you know, there I was, I was away from home. It was a terrible storm. And so the electricity was out in the in the building. So we're all we're sitting in a circle by candlelight, introducing ourselves. And they got to me, and with no premeditation, I said I was Gish Jen. Oh my. <laughs> and of course, needless to say, Gish Jen, you know, Lillian Jen had been a nice Chinese girl. 
Christian was something else altogether. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, I'm propping the door open at night, you know, you know, the whole thing. And, um, you know, still, I have to say that, you know, when I first published my first, very first story, I published it under Lillian Jen. And everybody looked at me and they said, Lillian Jen did not write the story. Gishjen wrote oh, the story, <laughs> and I and I realized that they were right, and so I, was I can think of you with nothing else but Gishjen. I know it's hard to you Lillian know. doesn't quite uh, Lillian Jen. You know, I you know it, you know beautiful, it, uh, but you are Gish. <laughs> it's still my legal name. I should really just change it, but you know, uh, there's a different handwriting that even goes with Lillian Jen. You know, the Palmer method. You know, it's a very nice, much more much more legible handwriting. You know. So, who are some of the mentors that you had as a writer when you oh. started writing? You know, I, I've been very, very lucky, and I and I will say that, um, you know, I, I probably can't name them all, but I will say first of all that Jim McPherson at Iowa was incredibly influential. Um, I got there the, his his first year, and of course, you know, uh, you know, a friend of mine many years later gave me a, a, a present, and it was a it was a poster, and across the bottom was American Vision. Mm. So I think, of course, I have written, you know, obsessively about America, and would I have done that? We're, we're not for Jim. I don't know. Hmm. You know, I don't know. But, but but certainly he encouraged that idea that you could write fiction that was concerned with nationhood and, and the American experiment. Um, and also for from his point of view, you know, he, he never emphasized only craft. It was always vision, vision, vision. It was craft and vision, right? That was kind of unusual. Um, also, I will say that, you know, I'm fast forwarding, you know, a, z- a zillion years, but very, very lucky to have attracted the attention of both Cynthia Ozick and Grace Paley. Oh you know, um, I mean, I, I can still remember the moment I was giving a, a well, a, a reading in Harvard Square, and I look up and it's like, oh my God, it's Grace Paley in the audience. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God. And I remember too, I had, I had picked up a book. Um, I knew she was interested in me because I had picked up a book of interviews with her that Mickey Perlman had done. You know, I was like, oh, look at this, an interview with Grace Paley, and I'm reading along. And she starts talking about me. I mean, you can imagine the moment. I was like, oh my God. Um, and, and, but then, and, and I also came to the attention, um, of you know, Cynthia I don't, of Cynthia Ozick. And so I had the two of them, which is so interesting, you know, of course, OZPA, such different, yeah, such different two sensibilities. very different ideas about what the writer should be doing. Right. Um, with one, as you know, I was, um, I forget what election it was. I was, I was asked to be on the Jim Lehrer News Hour to talk about, you know, what, what sorts of things we should be discussing. Um, during the election, I remember I said campaign finance reform. Um, you know, Cynthia was really rather critical of me for that. And she sort of said, you know, you're being a citizen. You know, mm. so her idea of the artist was really somebody who was quite, you know. Apart who, from that. Yes, apart from society. Of course, Grace, Grace was, was the <laughs> opposite, you know. And of course, I think those of us, you know, I mean, I adored them both. Um, you know, there is, but there is a part of me that wonders if, if Grace had had been involved in a few less protests, um, whether we ha- might have a little more work from her. Right. <laughs> you know, it's hard not to look at that trade off and sort of say, well, you know, Grace, you know, did you really have to go to them all? <laughs> you know, did you really have to get arrested? You know, all that time, or because you listen, you know, well, where does got a little more work done when you were in prison? So, so what do you think about it now? I mean, what is the role of a writer now? now I, I in a think very scary. Well, you wrote this book, obviously, yeah. but I, in a very, very scary, dark time, 
what is the role of a writer now? Well, yeah, I think is it that, more I think, Grace or more Cynthia? Interesting. I th- I think I've come down right in between the two of them. Hmm. I think I've come down right down the middle. So that um, I do think that um, that you know, like I I don't think it's my job to be on the front lines. You know, I just don't think that that's my role. Um, but I do think that fiction should be speaking to society. And I think that I also think, I think the novel's gone a little bit off the rails. I think thanks to the MFA programs, I do think that it's gotten, it's, it's come to be that, um, I mean, I think it's important to, you know, to record what, what it's like to be human and what, what consciousness is. You know, I think that's a great project. But I also think that fundamentally, I think the, the novel is about society. Do you know what I mean? And it is about the individual and society. It's not just about, you know, you know, I, you know what I mean? I have all, all these stirrings and, you know, I, I, I think the novel is fundamental. It's a, it's a low form. And I think that it is concerned, you know, it's, it's, it's not journalism either though. Okay. We need the cohesion. You know, there's a kind of special cohesion. There's a lift off. You know, you need to feel that this is, that this, that it creates its own world, that it, you know, so this is, you, you know, you don't want to write something which could be confused. With the newspaper article, uh, we, we definitely need, to, you know, and, and especially to feel like there's kind of some inner stitching, do you know what I mean? Some kind of invisible stitching that's there. Um, and that's, you know, the voice, all kinds of things. But I do miss, but, I do but, miss. But, 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 but I, I, I think we should be, we should, we are rightly engaged with society. No, and, and, you know, you mentioned that Jim Lehrer asked you to come on and talk about mm. what we should be talking about. I think, I wish that there was more of that happening, where the writer was asked in terms of um, their views about the kinds of issues we should be approaching right now. I mean, a lot of writers have been doing that, and I think one of the things that, you know, I've mentioned it before, but... As a bookseller, one of the biggest changes I've seen in the last five, ten years is the diversity of voices that mm. are being published. So in essence, people are commenting on, you know, what's going on in so many different ways. I think. Yeah, that's right. And I, th- I think that, you know, um, look, you know, every field is trying to diversify, right? And, um, and you know, and, you know, as you know, publishing, it's, it's, it, the results have been mixed. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, when it comes to writing, this is one of the most fluid um, areas uh, of society. So it's much, much harder, you know, to, to diversify law schools, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard. So if you, you know, I just, you know, I'm a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And if you look at kind of like, you know, they're always trying to diversify, diversify, you know, it's what is the most diverse group by far? The writers, mm-hmm. by far the writers, and so that's what you know. So why should, you know if you ask well why should they come to us for 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 commentary? It's because you know we are an arena where we have we have a lot more diversity, a lot more a lot well, better what's representation. Is demographics, it's not perfect. Demographics are also better. changing to the point where mm. you know you you begin to see audiences develop because there are more voices yes. out there as well. Yes. it's yes. been you know it's been really great. I mean, at a time when you know the the body politic is moving against diversification. Oh God! Diversity. I mean, you you know, with migration and and, and immigration, you know, I'm very nervous about. I think there's a, a a talk tonight about what the Trump administration hopes to do about uh, coronavirus, oh, and I know that there's going to be like, uh, 
you know, doors are going to start shutting in yeah. terms of allowing people to come into the country as an excuse, you know, in, in one way or another. So, you know, there's a lot of resisting that we need to do. And yes. I'm really glad you wrote this book. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I think that, you know, of course, the vision is dark, but the hope is, you know, the hope is that people get to the end of my book and sort of think, oh, my God, it's so terrible. And. And. <laughs> yes. And, and, and. Would you do us a favor and sure. read a little bit of it? Of course. But, you know, this comes at the, you know, at the part of the book where, you know, Gwen has developed her pitching to a point where uh, she is on a, on a team. They are about to play in the Olympics. Um, I will say that at the time I wrote, you know, I wrote, you know, at the time I made baseball an Olympic sport that, of course, is just artistic um, freedom. But Good fortune. <laughs> but the good fortune is that, uh, that as you know, um, baseball is going to be an Olympic sport this summer. Anyway, and there, so she and her teammates are, are looking at the China-Russian team that they're getting ready to play. And um, because the China-Russian team has been genetically improved, um, they are all switch hitters. <laughs> it's terrifying. Perhaps all this was fear, pure and simple, on the part of Gwen's teammates. But feeding their obsession, of course, was the sense that baseball was more than a sport, that it was a crown jewel. There were people who said it wasn't even invented in America. There were people who pointed out it was mentioned by Jane Austen long before it was ever mentioned here. But if baseball took on a hallowed meaning, it took on that meaning in our American dreams. For was this not the level playing field we envisioned field on which people could show what they were made of? And didn't we Americans believe above all that everyone should have a real chance at bat? Didn't we believe that with the good of the team at heart, something in us might just hit a ball off our shoe tops and send it sailing clear out of the park? If Gwen's teammates were playing Chinmusha for something, I thought, it was for this. For a chance to show, my mother would have said that even if we all return to the dirt and the wind and the rain, like the plants and the animals, we had a bigness in us, something beyond algorithms and beyond upgrades, something we were proud to call human, or so it seemed to me. Thank you, Gish Jen. The book is The Resistors. Gish, it's a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you so much, Mitch.